Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to the Thor's Hermes podcast. Today is June 23rd, 2019, and this is our episode 2 in season 3. My name is Rudolf, and I'm your host. Thank you for coming back to listen to our show. This episode is after quite a long while again a Masonic episode, meaning that I will be talking to a brother Freemason, Jamie Paul Lamb from Phoenix, Arizona. But to make it quite clear, this is not going to be an episode for Freemasons, but about Freemasonry and more particularly about the magical and occult aspects of the craft. Before we delve into that, a few little things. Thanks for the great reception of our last episode where there were a lot of downloads and by your reactions and the statistics I get, it showed me that you really listened to Susan Martinez right to the end with big attention. That makes me really happy. You also seemed to like our new intro and outro music. Thanks again to Chris Roberts for having written it, particularly for the Thoughts Hermes podcast. I really appreciate. Also, let me give you a quick reminder that for those of you who prefer YouTube, an audio-only version of this episode is also available on my new YouTube channel. Search for Thoughts Hermes podcast there. For those of you who have not been with the podcast for a couple of episodes, just a last time, a little announcement. From season three onwards, all regular episodes are interview only. So no news or reviews. Many of them also with musical interludes like this one you're listening to now. Once a month, there will be also an additional episode called the Thoth Hermes Ex Libris where I will always present three 10-minute and one 20-minute reports and reviews of events, books, CDs, etc. This should make the podcast more interesting and varied, bring more information to you, and also help me to produce more regularly. Talking about producing, remember that in the newsletter I sent out lately, I had asked if anyone could help me with editing the interview recordings. And yes, Wolfgang from Germany did contact me. So today's interview was already cut and sound edited by him. This is really awesome and I cannot thank him enough for that. You all also should because it will make sure that those episodes will not drag along, but that I can release them very regularly. You will probably hear more about Wolfgang in a future episode where I will shortly talk to him. Please do get in touch with me for your requests, ideas and criticism. 
You can always do this on Facebook or Twitter via the podcast's homepage, which is www.thoughtshermes.com. That is D-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There you have a contact form, you can send voicemail to me, or you just send an email to info at thoughtshermes.com. I promised you some music for this episode, and as our guest today is also a musician, he offered me two pieces he played for you to play on this episode. Let's therefore start with Como posso penetrar voce, played by Jamie Paul Lamb and his band Moonlight Magic.
Como posso penetrar você? Played by Jamie Paul Lamb and his band Moonlight Magic. In a few moments, you are going to hear the first part of my interview with Brother Jamie. The main topic of our talk is his book Myth, Magic and Masonry, which was published in 2018. As its title suggests, the book talks about the relationship between Freemasonry and the occult. But it is especially interesting because in it, Jamie develops several thought-provoking interpretations of the symbolic and allegorical content of Freemasonry. He is able to do that because his personal background is not only that of a Mason, but he has also a background in the OTO and attended teachings of the builders of the Adytum, that well-known occult order. So, ceremonial magic, Mithraism, Roman mystery cults and others are interpretative lenses in this book. Beyond that, we also talk about Jamie's personal interests and history. This interview lasts about one hour. After about 30 minutes, we will take a short musical break. Come and join me and brother Jamie Paul Lamb. Here comes the interview. I'm very happy to welcome on the Thor Thermes podcast today, Jamie Paul Lamp from Phoenix, Arizona. Brother Jamie, welcome here. And it's a wonderful pleasure to have you finally, after a few months of heavy wait, finally have you on this podcast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, brother. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, the reason why I found even out about you and the reason why we're meeting is a book that you have published, I think about a year ago or so, which is called Myth, Magic and Masonry. And these big three M's that you're talking about there, especially the combination of the three, is something that I got immediately fascinated by the title, also because I admit it's personally something I'm very much interested in, but I know a lot of people out there that are, and uh, I thought it would be an excellent opportunity that we get to know you and that we talk about that subject. So, Jamie, I think before we start talking about the book, it would be nice if you could introduce yourself a bit to our audience, say where you're coming from in the sense of masonry and maybe the other bits that we are going to talk about. Well, I'll leave it to you. Just tell us why you are what you are today in that field. Well, I'm Jamie Paul Lamb, as you said, and I'm, uh, I've am i been a Mason for about uh, eight years now. I entered the fraternity um, in Connecticut in the United States at St. John's Lodge number six in Norwalk, Connecticut, and uh, affiliated with a few other lodges because I moved around. Uh, we were in Los Angeles at South Pasadena 290 uh, for a while. Then we moved here to Arizona. Uh, just about a year ago, we chartered a new sort of quote unquote traditional observance lodge is what they kind of call the model now, but it's uh, Ascension Lodge number 89 in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm the lodge organist there. Mm -hmm. And and uh, 
Yeah, we chartered that. Uh, I've been I've been involved with some magical orders and independent research and just the entire time I've been very interested in trying to unpack some of the some of our allegories and some of our symbolism in the craft uh, of Freemasonry. And, uh, you know, just in trying to synthesize the information for myself and make sense of it, because, as you know, you go through the the three Blue Lodge degrees and um, at least my experiences, you know, nobody really other than the moral and ethical interpretations that are, mm. you know, pretty much contained in the lectures anyway, at least in Preston Webb ritual. Other than that, uh, you know, you're not given too much guidance. Uh, and that's my experience, you know, so I had to kind of, uh, over the years I've been, uh, you know, investigating different interpretations of our symbolism, allegory and ritual. And, uh, this is kind of my book sort of represents my findings up to that point. As you said, it was published about a year ago, uh, August of 2018, on the laudable pursuit imprint and uh it kind of those are my findings up to that point for the most part right i'll take you up on that because you say when you enter a masonic blue lodge up to the third degree well it's moral and ethics yes of course but not much beyond that into the direction of uh, well magical masonry let's call it like that um I think a lot of us have that shared experience. Well, I have been a Mason for 26 years now here in Austria, and I've made mainly the same, the same experience. And I have a lot of others I talk to because it's a field that I'm interested in, and the feedback is almost all the time the same. But I get the impression over the last, well, five years or so, maybe it's because I'm looking more, but there has been especially in the US, a movement towards those deeper and even occult content of masonry. Would you agree on that or don't you have that impression? I would say certainly. In fact, we have a, uh, at our temple downtown here in Phoenix, there are five blue lodges that meet there. And we have what's called a, a joint education night that we do once a month. So that education night is, uh, is put on by all of the five lodges that meet at our temple. And it in, we've been including the candidates or neophytes or potential Masons that, that uh, are interested in that event. So we keep it sort of tiled, as we say, you know, we don't mm -hmm. talk about the, the uh, uh, signs, grips, words, certain aspects of the ritual. You know, there are things, that, that we keep out of the conversation when we do those education nights. Uh, but I'm bringing that, I'm bringing that up because, uh, we have seen like just the other night we had one, uh, about a week ago and there were 17, uh, candidates there, which is a lot, right? So a it lot is, of people, yeah. a lot yeah. of people showed up and, uh, these are non Masons and they're just interested in learning more. And 15 of the 17 of them said something when, when asked, you know, why, why they were visiting or what interests them in Freemasonry. 15, literally 15 of the 17 said either, you know, esoterica 
or, you know, they're interested in the occult or they're interested in at least spirituality or mysticism. Um, and then, you know, a couple of them, one guy was like, you know, my, my grandfather was a Mason. So I just wanted to find out more about him. And then another guy said, you know, he was just out of the army. So he was there for sort of fraternalism, Mm -hmm. but, uh, but that should show you about the ratio that we're running right now is the vast majority of the guys and they're younger guys too. We're talking Mm -hmm. anywhere from, you know, twenties, thirties, um, these guys are almost all coming in for uh, the reason why I came in and presumably the reason why you did. Yeah, well, that's an interesting move. Absolutely. But those you were mentioning just now, they were candidates. They were not had not been initiated yet, right? Right. That's correct. Um, I also get the impression that at least over here, many of those who are candidates have that interest, that particular interest. And many of them then also get disappointed because at least right away, they don't find that. Is that also your impression? That is, that is, you know, particularly in the more rural lodges, I'm sure, uh, like at my lodge, at my Blue Lodge, when I petitioned, I wouldn't say that they were a what we call a knife and fork lodge, where it's just kind of a social kind of dining experience with the, uh, you know, the inconvenience that you have to go through these degrees and do some memorization. <laughs> um, but uh, but I wouldn't say it was that, but it was certainly nothing I'd call a, you know, an esoteric lodge or a very observant lodge. Great guys, beautiful people. I love them all. But uh, definitely in there, definitely in Freemasonry for what I look at as more of a, a mid-century kind of um sort of a, a mid-century uh, approach, you know, whereas yeah. guys came home from World War II, they wanted an instant social life, they wanted to get their kids into uh, Demolay, they wanted to get their wife into the Order of the Eastern Star, and they wanted mm-hmm. to get into the shrine so they could have some fun. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, that tide has changed over, as you've seen, as we've been seeing here in a big way, uh, that tide has sort of changed. And while we're losing a lot of numbers, you know, we don't have that inflation that we had in the middle of last century with fraternalism and social mm-hmm. orders. While we don't have that, we are paring it down to a more kind of lean base of uh, good men, you know, who are, yeah, who, who, are, who are coming in for, who are coming in for what we have, the priceless heritage as you know, Manly P. Hall called it of our uh, fraternity. You know, we're carrying yeah. we're carrying something of immense value uh, with our our body of work. You know. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Manly P. Hall. You gave me a cue for later on, but um, before that, without wanting to be too specialized, because this is not a Masonic uh, podcast, but uh-huh. um, as it is part of the basic question anyway um is your lodge and the lodges in arizona basically in blue working a kind of emulation right right uh what do you mean by emulation right well the english the english based uh, the english based ritual we do uh what's called preston web rituals yes, preston so, web, yeah. so it mm-hmm. would be based on uh you know what you find in his illustrations and uh yeah so and the classical, the classical, which initially was influenced by England. 
right? Yes. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. But of course, blue masonry is not all that you're part of. So uh, you are and were part of other uh, orders and ongoing, further going uh, orders than the three degrees in blue masonry. Would you like to explain a bit about that? Sure. So after about uh, after about a year in the Blue Lodge, the first three degrees of regular Freemasonry, uh, I was uh, asked if I wanted to do Scottish Rite. So the ancient accepted order, uh, Scottish Rite, and um, I had some friends at my Blue Lodge or some brothers at my Blue Lodge uh, who were going to the Valley of Bridgeport back in Connecticut. So uh, I started... Uh, you know, I was interested in that because, of course, I was aware of Albert Pike, who wrote mm -hmm. Morals and Dogma. And uh, I knew that that was a, uh, you know, sort of a, um, uh, you know, that was sort of a, a big deal among amongst uh, the more occult minded Freemasons. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so I was definitely interested in that. And uh, as we were talking about before you started recording um, in, in America, the Scottish Rite, you go through it ridiculously quickly. Um, it was it took about three months for me to go from, you know, the fourth degree, which is mm -hmm. where you'd where you'd pick up here after the Blue Lodge from the fourth degree to the 32nd degree. Uh, there, there were maybe um, and we just do the necessary portrayals. I don't know if you knew that about the way we do Scottish right here. Yes, well, we do the same here, but just for comparison for our listeners over here in, at least in Austria, but I think it's mostly like that in Europe. It takes us the same, the same route takes us about 12 years. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that they would do that here. Uh, yeah. Anyway, anyway, so I, I did Scottish right and I, I stayed pretty involved for a while. Um, and then we, I transferred my, uh, my membership to the Valley of Pasadena when we moved to Los Angeles. And then we ended up coming to Arizona, to Phoenix, and I ended up doing York Rite, what we call York Rite here, mm -hmm. which is, uh, I understand they don't call it that in Europe. If, well, uh, partly York Rite, partly they call it Royal Arch, so it depends mm -hmm. on the country, but uh, that's about the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our, our York Rite consists, what we call York Rite consists of three bodies. It's the chapter, which is the Royal Arch chapter, the council, which is what they call cryptic masonry, yes. um, and then the uh, commandry, which is the Knights Templar. Mm -hmm. You know, funny enough, uh, uh, both the York Rite and the Scottish Rite use the same structures here in Europe, not only use them, they, they are based on the American jurisdictions for their chapters and degrees, etc. So that's, oh, okay. for example, my Scottish Rite refers without being dependent but refers to the southern jurisdiction of the scottish rights in uh, in north america so oh, okay yeah yeah we have i don't know why there's even a distinction i came up through the northern masonic jurisdiction and then i trans mm -hmm. i transferred to southern uh when we moved to los angeles because the vast majority of america is southern jurisdiction southern yes uh-huh so yeah, and then I ended up doing the uh, the York Rite suite of degrees, and 
And then from there, oh, from there I went on to, uh, I, I was doing some magical work on the side. I, uh, when I was back in Connecticut, uh, I got interested in Ordo Templi Orientis uh, through a brother from the Scottish Rite. And we were going to Tahuti Lodge in New York City um, in Queens for uh, Gnostic Masses. And I, mm-hmm. I, was, I was attending several Gnostic Masses and little workshops and things that they had. Uh, and it was very interesting to me. You know, I liked that it was uh, quasi-Masonic sort of work, but it was uh, definitely more explicit in terms of the occult. You know, you could see that, you know, it, they didn't make any, um, they didn't try to conceal what they were, you know, the occult value of what they were doing. You know, that it was blatantly alchemical. It was blatantly, you know, solar phallic kind of definitely yeah. imagery so i was interested in that just because you know it was but you know again you could look at that two ways is it sort of spoon feeding it where you don't really have to kind of dig deeper like you do in the blue lodge if you that stuff is in the blue lodge but sure. but, but you kind of have to uh peel away the layers in order to get at it whereas in um OTO and some other magical orders, you know, it's right there on the table. And uh, so I was interested in that. I ended up doing a few degrees in Ordo Templi Orientis. Um, I also, here, here's a big one for me, is when we got to Phoenix, Arizona, I was at an OTO event. Uh, I think it was, I think it was some initiations, uh, maybe first degree initiations. And I was there as a participant, I think I had a role in the degree, but there were um, there were some Masons there who I knew that were, you know, in both. And we were we were having our little dinner and, you know, wine and Mediterranean food, which is what we typically have at our uh, little feasts after the degrees. And I overheard a Mason, a man who I knew to be a Mason, talking to another Mason. And I heard him say the college. Now, that that kind of piqued my interest because for several years before that, I had been interested in coming into contact with the uh, Societas Rosicruciana, mm-hmm. um, so the Masonic Rosicruci- Rosicrucian Society. And uh, I had tried to contact them in Connecticut. I had tried to contact them in California. You know, I was asking around. I was It's an invitational uh, Masonic yes, yeah. order. Yeah. So so you can't really you know, you can't petition for it. You got to get an invitation extended to you. So but I had always been interested in that because, you know, I'm interested in Hermetic Kabbalah and I'm interested in Rosicrucianism. And I know that those things are squarely within the purview of what the college does. And uh, so um, I ended up, as I said, I overheard that at at the feast after an OTO degree. And I approached that brother and I said, "Um, is there a college in Arizona? Because I didn't even know that there was. And and he said, well, we must be doing our job then. Because, you know, kind of making a joke about the invisible college of Rosicrucianism. And and anyway, that kind of started a conversation. Uh, He already knew my inclinations because... You know, we we had associated Masonically already. So I ended up uh, through that channel. 
I got an invitation extended. That was about four or five years ago. But mm-hmm. I've been very involved. Other than the Blue Lodge, my my main focus masonically has been in the uh, Societas Rosicruciana. Okay, for those among our listeners who are not Masons, or maybe not have not been Masons for a long time, can you just extend a little bit about Societas Rosicruciana because it only exists in North America and the UK, as far as I know, at least to a larger extent. Okay, so that is, to my knowledge, uh, it's currently the oldest running Rosicrucian order. It was uh, founded first in Scotland, I believe through the work of Kenneth Mackenzie, um, who had spent some time on the continent uh, and he he had done some work with Eliphas Levy, and uh, he he also was the one from whom William Wynne Westcott procured the cipher manuscripts for the original Golden Dawn work. Mm-hmm. Yep. So um, Kenneth Mackenzie, I believe, was instrumental in in for the formation of the first college in uh, Scotland, and uh, though he was an Englishman, but uh, that college started, and then there was one started in London. I believe it was Metro College, where Mathers and Westcott and Woodman were. And that was about, I want to say, 1880. So it was mm-hmm. not not even 10 years before the formation of the Golden yeah. Dawn. So, and then uh, in 18, uh, shortly afterward, there was, uh, there, there was the Societas Rosicruciana in Kivitatibus Federatus, which is the, mm-hmm. the 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 order in the United States, and uh, that was formed shortly afterwards. So uh, it's been a long running uh, Rosicrucian order. Now, you being in Vienna, uh, you may know of something order older that's of uh, Germanic origins, maybe something ar- around. Tubingen or Stuttgart or someplace? Yes, there are a few things, but they are all, well, basically dead at the moment, So that, which is a pity. It's also part of the reason why I've started this podcast initially, because as much as I'm really happy that uh, the tradition has been now carried on by the Anglo-Saxon countries for over a hundred years now, and it's important that it has happened, it's such a pity that this part of the world to name Berlin, Prague and Vienna, for example, that that line um, which has created over the centuries a lot of the alchem- chemical background or secretion background, etc, etc. Yeah. Um, at the moment, at least since World War Two is rather silent on it. So at least I wanted to create a voice for that part of the world. Funny enough, 85% of our audience are American. So that tells you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's, it's, it's, it's good anyway. Um, you said that masonry brought you into the OTO, so to speak, at least the past led you that way. Do you think if you had not become a Freemason, do you think you would have ended up in a magic log anyway, or was masonry giving you the kickoff to to look around and to 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 pick it up well personally my foundation is decidedly masonic uh mm-hmm. if if i had not joined freemasonry i highly doubt i would have 
gotten interested in uh, in ceremonial magic or hermeticism or or maybe hermeticism and Neoplatonism and things like that, but only mm-hmm. because only because of uh, an interest I I had in philosophy before I was a Mason. Mm-hmm. So um, I may have come across Plotinus or Porphyry or or some of the uh, you know, source kind of Neoplatonic material and certainly the Hermetica. Um, I could see that happening and maybe that would have segued into a, a magical path for me outside of uh, established Western esotericism. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and when I say Western esotericism, you know, I see, uh, at least right now, I see Freemasonry as being. Um, kind of the the bedrock of that because because when we think western esotericism today we think essentially of the golden dawn work right what they had right. what they had synthesized in uh you know 1887 1888 and then 1892 with their second order material mm-hmm. um you know it, it was really that synthesis that kind of curriculum that they established from largely from the cipher manuscripts, as we mentioned earlier, and from uh, Mather's work on the second order ritual, from what I understand. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, so none of that. So it's important to, to note that um, Mather's and Westcott and Mackenzie and all of these uh, people who contributed to that, that, that Golden Dawn curriculum in one way or another, were all Freemasons. And not only were they all Freemasons, but they were Masonic Rosicrucians. So yeah. so to me, Freemasonry would, would be the bedrock of that structure. Mm-hmm. And then built upon that would be Masonic Rosicrucianism. And then a further distillation of that uh, material would be represented by uh, Golden Dawn work, mm-hmm. which, is, which has been a big interest of mine lately. Right. I find it very interesting how you put that. I feel the same way. To me, masonry is almost like a filter, you know, to to attract people into something and those who are interested and those who want to go further end up in going into the more occult and magical um, groups or orders or solitary work, whatever they choose to do. Yeah. Um, there are a few very popular well or well-known examples of people who did the same not necessarily in the same order but um, if you take somebody like Lon Myla Duquette who, who you are certainly aware of mm-hmm. he is a famous and high rank OTO member in the US and he is also a very well-known Mason um, so do you think this is quite a, a common to do, especially the Thelemic and Masonic paths in parallel, or is this rather exceptional? I see a lot of, uh, maybe if some of your listeners don't know, Ordo Templi Orientis is a, uh, is a co-ed fraternity. So there are, mm-hmm. it's male and female. So yeah. uh, amongst the males in the order, um, I would say there's, from my experience, there's probably maybe 25% of them are Freemasons. Um, Mm -hmm. And those that are Freemasons, uh, I would say out of that 25%, 
probably um, most of those were OTO before they were uh, bef- before they were Freemasons. I think they went okay. back. I think they sort of worked backwards um, mm-hmm. into Freemasonry. Uh, I I came through Freemasonry first and then went in that mm-hmm. direction. I'm, I got to tell you, not to knock anybody else's path, but I'm so glad I did that because, uh, right. you know, to have that initial uh, initiatic experience in the Blue Lodge, uh, I think set me personally, I wouldn't have wanted it to go the other way. Um, right. One other one other thing to mention about Ordo Templi Orientis, which I'm sure you're aware of, is uh, – that it was a uh, uh, it was a, a German sort of uh, super appendant body. So mm-hmm. in in order when or before Alistair Crowley's involvement in Ordo Templi Orientis, um, I believe it was the Theodore Royce. Theodore Royce, yes. Yeah, um, he or was, and was Kellner one of the guys too? I don't yeah, know my history exactly. on OTO mm-hmm. very well, but um, Kellner and Royce. Um, they composed so so there were various extant rites that were not being practiced in in their blue lodge is my understanding and mm-hmm. so so they took the uh, they took the royal arch they took the um, templar degrees they took uh, various aspects of the Scottish Rite. They took Memphis Mitzrayim. Memphis Mitzrayim, exactly. Mm. Yeah, and some of the uh, Cagliostro's work. And they synthesized that into a super appendant body. So right when you were done with the Blue Lodge, if you wanted to go into that, you could just sort of one-stop shopping into mm-hmm. this into this appendant body, as opposed to what we have now, where it's sort of diffused into a, a few different tentacles. Um, and uh, that was my understanding of the OTO. So it was a recognized Masonic body. And it wasn't until I I want to say 1904 when Crowley received uh, Thelemic Law in Cairo. Um, and then I think 1910, he became the outer head of the order. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so, and it wasn't until after that that it became co-ed and and that uh, it became decidedly philemic. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean content-wise, I'm absolutely with you. I don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure about the years, but it must be approximately that in any case. Yeah. 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 No, very interesting. May I ask you, you don't have to answer that question if you don't want to. You were mentioning initially that you are an uh, organist of your of your uh, Blue Lodge. Um, are you a musician professionally or what? Are you just a, a good musician? That's why they chose you. No, I, I've on and off. I've been a professional musician. Uh, I've okay. been I've been playing music my whole life. Uh, right. You know, starting out in little hardcore punk groups when I was a teenager and, mm-hmm. and then going on, uh, you know, kind of training myself. And, uh, I, I played upright or acoustic bass in jazz groups, um, right. prof- professionally around the East coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when I was out there, uh, I, I, you know, figured out my way around the keyboard instruments. So I'm at right. least proficient in, uh, piano and organ and um and uh you know and guitar i've been playing i like currently i have a guitar gig in uh 
uh, a lounge exotica group where we do kind of mid-century Martin Denny kind of right. stuff. Right. Now, my question was not completely innocent or just just curiosity. It is also because, and that brings us into the first chapter of your book, which talks about the relationship between masonry and ceremonial magic, mm -hmm. which just for the fun of language in German, literally translate, translated, we call it ritual magic, which mm -hmm. of course links it even more to masonry if you want. Yeah. Um, but people who are very much into ritual and ceremonial magic uh, are often performers themselves. Performers, I mean, either in a professional or a semi-professional way as musicians, actors, etc. And I find that interesting because, and maybe you have something to say about that, and you seem to be an example of that as well. Yeah, I mean, I've come to uh, really appreciate um, my involvement in music. You know, I, I have a deeper understanding of it now through uh, my my work in magic and the occult and masonry, uh, you know, just in terms of... Uh, like we, a friend and I, a friend of mine and myself were talking about uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, for example, mm. um, his his organ music. He was an organist. That was his main instrument. And he mm. and he he wrote from the organ. And you could tell in his organ works that, uh, you know, some of his music, when you listen to the fugues and things like that, the two part inventions, the symphonias. When you listen to these things, they're as natural as a tree. And this is very important magically, I think. Um, his music was almost as if a human being didn't touch it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was really, it, it seems like he channeled, he, after learning the nuts and bolts and the technique on the instrument and becoming proficient as a, a medium through which that could pass, um, then he was able to channel something further and bring that into the world with the least bit of his own personal identity on it, it seemed, you know, mm. so his stuff was as natural as any tree that you see, you know, he really did a lot to codify and define what we think of as, as, uh, you know, modern harmony. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and it's evident also in that he signed he, I think he signed all of his work solo Deo Gloria, mm. um, and meaning uh, all glory to God. Mm -hmm. And um, and that should say something about he probably I'm sure he knew that after he became proficient in in being a medium for that experience, he was able to let that uh, that message he was able to channel that message in music and let it kind of pass through without him having to overthink it or get, you know, and, and maybe that's what it means to be a performer. I do a lot of improvisation, whether it's in mm -hmm. jazz or my lounge group. And every time I overthink it and kind of try and do something clever or do something that's intellectual, um, it's never as good as when I'm able to just kind of get out of the way and let let music happen. You know? Flow, yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's what, what's called the flow, actually, in a way. Also, mm -hmm. also, sportsmen, I think, um, experience that in a certain way of performing what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting view. Yeah.
Let's take a short break before we talk further on those interesting topics. Jamie just mentioned Johann Sebastian Bach and his music as an example of magical artistic experiences. Therefore, I thought it would be nice to ask Jamie to pick a piece by Bach as an example and musical interlude in this interview. And he did, and so we now hear Bach's Fuga in G minor, number 578, played by Ton Koopman.
Johann Sebastian Bach, Fuga in G minor. And now we return to Jamie Paul Lamb and the interview about his interpretation of masonry and its allegorical and occult content. The interview will be immediately followed by another musical piece, this one again by brother Jamie and his band Moonlight Magic. Their piece is called H for Horse. But now, the second part of the interview first. You mentioned Manly P. Hall first as, as an inspiration for yourself. Did I get that right? Oh, yeah. It was when I read Secret Teachings of All Ages, which was before I was a Mason, I have mm -hmm. to say, for better or worse, now, whatever you think about Manly P. Hall, um, and I've, you know, now in retrospect, I look back at some of the passages in, in uh, Secret Teachings and I think, well, maybe he didn't have the best grasp on that aspect of the material. Mm -hmm. Like he seems very um, ethically or morally divided on his view of ceremonial magic, per, yeah. for example. You know, uh, I don't share his view on that. I think his view of Kabbalah is very convoluted and, and not necessarily accurate, mm -hmm. you know. But, uh, and, and I have his tarot deck that he made with uh, Augustus Knapp, and his attributions are certainly not any attributions that most Western occultists are familiar with, and they yeah, um, they almost they almost seem sort of willy nilly. Like his Hebrew alphabet is not assigned the way that you and I know it to be assigned. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so all that taken into account, it was his um, book, Secret Teachings of All Ages, that really inspired me. It got me interested in the mystery of the Western esoteric tradition. Um, he spoke so highly of Freemasonry that before I was halfway through with that book, I had already petitioned a lodge. I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah, it was just very instrumental at that period uh, for me. So there you see how a book that is, and I share your opinion entirely, that is maybe not um, fully accurate or far from that, but how it can inspire you to a point that it and has its role through that to to bring people further and well maybe have them discover what really is behind things by themselves yeah absolutely yeah. well we spoke a lot about how you named your first chapter occult perspectives on mason of masonry i think we we covered that a bit and of course i don't want to give away too much of the book because people who are listening i hope get interested in that book and get it themselves mm -hmm. but Let's maybe talk about the other three or four main uh, chapters, just as a headline and a few words about that. The next chapter we slightly touched at a bit is about ceremonial magic and masonry. So, of course, it seems obvious even for the person who both knows both magic and masonry only a bit from the outside that there must be a link there. But how you would you describe that link or what interested you particularly in that part of your book? I would say um, probably the main sort of connective tissue between Freemasonry and ceremonial magic. Uh, and as I said in the book, I think they're integral to one another. I don't I don't think uh, 
I don't think you really get one in its recognizable form without considering the other. You know, they've mm-hmm. been so mutually um, communicative, uh, you know, and they've really changed the face of each tradition. Um, and as as we said earlier, arguably, you wouldn't have anything like ceremonial magic in its present state unless you had Freemasonry and then the Societas Rosicruciana and then the Golden Dawn in that order. So but but I would say the main connection that I find, um, y- you know, and definitely in reference to the, the name of your program here is that it's it's uh, they're both very hermetic. And mm-hmm. when I when I say hermetic, um, I'm specifically talking about that uh, the relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm and that, how there is a sympathy um, in, you know, that one is reflected in the other or as you'd read in the Emerald Tablet, as above, so below. It's a common mm-hmm. catchphrase. And and it's, uh, you know, I think every most people are familiar with that as being a hermetic idea. Um, now hermeticism, here's why I tie it in so deeply is that let's say when you look at astronomy and astrology, so both of those, um, disciplines measure the measure and calculate the movement of celestial bodies, right? Mm -hmm. Um, however, astrology comes with the accompanying belief and it's a hermetic belief that those movements of celestial bodies have an effect on the astrologer, mm-hmm. on, on, on the microcosm man, right? Yeah. Um, and same thing in alchemy. If you look at the difference between alchemy and chemistry, both of them measure and, and, and catalog the, the transformation of elements, let's say, as, mm-hmm. a, as a broad definition. Um, but the difference between chemistry and alchemy is that um, in in alchemy there is that accompanying hermetic belief that these operations in whether it's in the plant kingdom the mineral kingdom um, you know that these operations uh, have an effect on the operator on the alchemist mm-hmm. uh, on the on the microcosm the macrocosm affects the microcosm now bringing that back to Freemasonry we talk about operative and speculative Freemasonry right. Um, and, uh, I think in, in speculative Freemasonry, when we apply these working tools, the working tools of the craft, um, and we, we go through the, uh, you know, our initiatory rights, I think the difference between say operative stone masonry and speculative Freemasonry is, uh, in Freemasonry, there is the accompanying hermetic belief that uh, these these workings, this work that we do, capital W, has an effect on the Freemason. And I don't think mm-hmm. any Mason, I don't think any Mason, whether he's of magical inclination or not, is going to argue that we're there to make good men better, as they say, you know. Sure. So. It's just a pass that can be different. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that so that hermetic kind of linchpin is not only central to astrology, alchemy, and Freemasonry, but of course it's it's uh, a, a central tenet of ceremonial magic, as we learn through, um, like the Florentine Neoplatonists, or yeah. Th- yeah. or th- or through Agrippa, yeah. uh, 
and yeah. certainly going all the way back to the you know Asclepius and the you know mm -hmm. source Hermetic documents. Yeah, very true. I find your take very interesting when you say that. Well, let let put me the question differently. Normally, every Freemason would agree that it can lead if you operate also the mythical and magical masonry it can lead to a further development in your research and that you get into those things like magic later on. I would not expect a majority of OTO members, non-Masons, to say the same thing from the other side. They sometimes give me the impression that they are rather suspicious I mean, I have been member of a couple of, of occult groups which are not linked to masonry. And when I told there that I was a mason, I, I was really looked at a bit suspiciously um, why I was here. I don't know if you get my point, but it is certainly seen like that from the Masonic point of view, but maybe not from the other side. And that's exactly why I find your take so interesting because I couldn't agree more, but I'm thinking about it. What would the other side say? Did you make the same experience? Um, at, at times, you know, I tried to, if I did get any vibing because I'm a Freemason, you know, somebody wants to create some distance between me and them who's in say OTO or something, uh, who distrusts my Freemasonry or my mm -hmm. being a Mason. Um, you know, that's, I guess that's just a, that's their problem. You know, I mean, sure. if, well, the next word is, ne is new world order, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, oh, you were talking about that thing. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. That, uh, and that's a take that I often get from, so to speak, occultists that, you know, young guys in the auto, etc., that they would say, hmm, you're amazing, but are you not part of that conspirational society? Yeah, I I just think, isn't that, I mean, you isn't that almost uh, beneath the individual to address that with somebody, you know what I mean? <laughs> Good answer, yes. Uh, Good answer. No, I, I'm not saying that uh, at all that I get any impression of that, but that's what's being, that's what I have been asked several times yeah. when I talked to occultist and letting them know that I'm, uh, as we call it, high degree Mason, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, I've honestly done so little work in trying to figure out Freemasonry vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the Illuminati and, and New World Order yeah, me stuff. Me too. Yeah, I mean, interest me at all. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, uh, I don't even know how to address that. If I were to be asked yeah. about that, I remember once in back in Connecticut, I was probably an entered apprentice because I was still driving the float that we did a little parade or something for the town mm -hmm. that we were in. And I was driving the float that these, all the old Masons were on. And, yeah. uh, you know, there were guys carrying the banner and everything. And, mm -hmm. uh, I remember hearing people on the side, Oh, that's the Illuminati. <laughs> or, <laughs> and I remember thinking, you don't know these guys very well. I, I you know, if you're calling them Illuminati, you know, I, yeah, I wonder no, where. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I tell you another story, which is really nothing to do with masonry, but very funny. I was a football, a soccer referee at the point, right? 
uh -huh. many, many years back. And I lived in France at the time, then I moved to Austria and I started refereeing in Austria. And I still wore the French um, coat of arms on my on my breast uh, pocket. You know? uh -huh. yeah. So those people, it was small leagues, it was not nothing, nothing of major interest. But of course they saw that 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 coat of arms that looked very different from what they were used to in Austria. And two of the players, I overheard them saying, oh, look, he must be an Illuminati. He has that kind of banner <laughs> on his breast shield. So, wow. You know, you don't have to be a Mason to be, to be approached as that. Um, no, but let's come back to your book, which is much more important. You were just mentioning now the astrological uh, aspects, and that's also a part of your book, solar and astrological um, aspects of, of masonry. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should talk a bit about that. And I have a very particular question about this, but maybe you introduce a bit into that chapter first. Sure. Yeah, I think, um, you know, without giving away the book, one of the central themes that runs through it is the Masonic Anolucus, the, mm -hmm. the year, year of light. So, you know, that we add um, and for those who don't know, we add 4000 years to the, you know, the regular Gregorian calendar. We're in 6,019 now. Right. We're in 6,019 now. So if you go look at some buildings around wherever you live, look in the northeast corner. You'll, If it's a Masonic building or sometimes otherwise, you'll find a Masonic cornerstone. And on that cornerstone, you'll often see whatever the year was plus 4,000 years, and it'll mm -hmm. say AL after it. So the Anna Lucas. Um, right. If we orient our frame of reference, that now this is a theme that runs through all four sections of, of the mm -hmm. book, but uh, hence the reason why I have a, uh, a minotaur and a zodiacal wheel on the cover. Um, <laughs> because that Masonic Anna Lucas falls squarely um, uh, in the vicinity of the Taurian precessional age. So mm -hmm. uh, very briefly, the vernal equinox occurs in a different sign of the zodiac for a 2160 year period. We're, cur we're currently in the, um, the uh, low degrees of the Piscean age, most people would say, right? Yes. Perhaps about to pass into the Aquarian age, maybe in a hundred and 100 or 150 years is what a mm -hmm. lot of people would say. But uh, if you go back to the year of the Analucus, which is the Masonic date, you know, creation date, basically, uh, you'll find that that is uh, the the beginning of the Taurian age. So there is a lot of Taurian symbolism running through, uh, you know, ceremonial magic, solar and astrological symbolism, of course, Mithraism and many other mystery cults. Um, and the uh, and certainly mythology, you know, mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. Knossos and King Minos and Crete and things, um, the Minoan culture, but uh, everywhere really. So that's kind of getting back to the solar and astrological section in my book. I look from that perspective at um, at uh, a lot of the symbolism and allegories of Freemasonry, and uh, kind of parse it out as to um as to you know what certain things may mean like have you done any of the uh, uh have you done royal arch yes 
Okay, so you know in Royal Arch we have the four banners, um, mm-hmm. the four the the veils basically, yeah. and um, you'll find that they they have the 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 bull, the lion, the man, and the yeah. eagle. Um, so if we look, these are the fixed signs of the zodiac. They are uh, Taurus, Leo, Aquarius, and uh, or Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius. Yes. Um, and for those who don't know, Scorpio equal, equals the eagle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Probably through Aquila. Yeah. Um, so um, if we orient ourselves to the Analucas, we find that that the vernal equinox occurring in Taurus puts the um, puts Leo at the summer solstice. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that puts the eagle or Scorpio at the autumnal equinox and it thereby puts Aquarius at the winter solstice, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. using that as kind of a frame of reference to approach Freemasonry's ritual and ceremonial magic and, 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 and you know, other things I deal with in the book, that's, mm-hmm. kind, of the, that's kind of the key. Um, another thing I bring up without getting into too much detail um, is... Uh, is uh, the the central allegory of the third degree? Let's call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a central allegory that happens um, in the third degree that could be um, interpreted as a, a one annual solar circuit allegorized, right? Right. Um, so, or mythologized, or or uh, personified, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I, you know, you got to give credit to, um, and I certainly cite him heavily in the book, is Robert Hewitt Brown. Um, right. He wrote a book, uh, Stellar Theology and Masonic Astronomy, um, mm-hmm. about 100 years ago or more. And uh, it was just, I'll tell you, uh, it was right after my Master Mason degree that I got that book. And uh, when I read it, it was one of those books that, um, you know, like it, have you seen, have you seen Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis? Probably. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know, the point where his ring falls off and you're like, oh my God, he's dead the whole time. I think I remember. Yes. Right. So not to spoil the movie for you, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so anyway, you get one of those moments where like your mind is blown and you're like, oh my God, I was thinking this the whole time when there's, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of flip the the uh, your perspective on something that happened to me when I read Robert Hewitt Brown's uh, book, right. where where I had I had looked at our central allegory from one perspective. I read that book and I literally had to like put it down and pace back and forth. Once it finally clicked in my mind, I was okay. like, I was like, oh my god, I can't believe that that uh, I I didn't see this or that this could possibly be the case. And, um, you know, so I, I go through Brown's thesis. Um, I, you know, I make my own personal contributions and, and my own original observations, of course, throughout the whole book. There are hundreds of sure, uh, no, no, absolutely uh, can confirm that. Yes. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, you got to give credit where credit's due. And, and uh, he really found a major chestnut uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, a perspective that, of looking at our work. In the blue line right right great now i have to ask you a question which 
is not exactly related to that chapter about solar and astrological aspects. If so, it's the solar aspect only. Um, you mentioned that earlier also the female participation and non-participation in masonry uh, mainly. And of course, if we talk about solar rights and solar approaches, immediately that brings us into phallic approaches, etc. So, mm -hmm. of course, regular Freemasonry is a men-only organization, a men-only order. And as opposed to that, organizations, most of the occult groups, also those who came out directly of Freemasonry, like then the Golden Dawn, I think this was also true for the original OTO, um, before it became Crowley's OTO, it was open to women from almost from the beginning. So do you have an explanation why either why it is not so for masonry or why it is so for those other orders? Is there a difference or is there is that a question of time or do you have an explanation for that? I guess I should start just, I'll first address my personal opinion of, uh, of um, Freemasonry as being a, a male or male only uh, yes, order. Mm -hmm. Okay, so again, I'm not speaking for Freemasonry here. Uh, uh, this sure. is, um, so Freemasonry is a suite of initiatory degrees. Um, they are decidedly masculine in uh, their component parts. Um, there's, I don't think that there would be very high efficacy for a woman to go through the three Blue Lodge Masonic degrees. I think they were sort of designed to be masculine and, and solar, as you mentioned. Um, and, um, you know, even if you look back Anthropologically, if you look back to other cultures spanning back as far as you care to look, you will find single gender socialization in their initiatory rights. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, women have certain biological cues that are obvious, um, yeah. like menstruation, pregnancy, um, whatever sort of bridal rights. Um, the quinceañera is one thing that they do here in the Southwest kind of a lot. When a, when a young Latina turns 15, there's a quinceañera, there's a certain okay. initiatory right. And whether we recognize these as anthropological mechanisms of initiation um, or not is, is just depends on, I guess, how much you know about uh, initiation in society, whether that's into mm -hmm. a street gang or into, you know, into a, a certain sect or uh, or a white coat ceremony for a doctor. There are initiations sure. that we anyway, a lot of these initiations are, are single gendered. And that doesn't mean that they're sexist. That just means that the impetus for creating and composing that certain initiatory right was to pass and look at the word initiation. It means to begin, to initiate, mm -hmm. right? So um, there are certain rights that are uh, masculine in their nature. You know, to make them feminine would would do a disservice to both genders because it wouldn't really help the woman. I mean, um, and uh, and it would and it would definitely lessen the efficacy for the for the male. Now, I'm not saying that uh, 
there's no place for women in greater west in the greater western esoteric tradition because of course there is you know um and whether that uh whether that place is more earth magic or whether it is more lunar in its uh orientation you know that seems to be the case mythologically i mean when you look at most um lunar um deities they're goddesses right they're mm -hmm. they're they're yeah. Ref, yeah. they're reflective they're feminine they're women i didn't make this up nobody you know this is yeah. just this is just anthropologically and mytholo mythologically this is just the way things have okay, played Sam. out and uh if you look at most solar deities they're typically men so um this isn't sexism this is uh this is just a natural um archetypal expression of gender i would say you and, know and why do you think then in the golden dawn and o2o etc which are derived from masonry um why do you think almost right from the beginning they did accept women is there a change <laughs> a, a paradigmic change in between or what's well, the reason to that well let's let's take the golden dawn for example um it so in the outer order of the golden dawn the the material from the cipher manuscripts when you go through all the knowledge lectures um mm -hmm. this material is just general information on western occultism uh there's though there are initiations um or different into the different grades of the outer order um And I haven't done them all, so I can't really speak to this from personal experience. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it looks to me like the grades are not necessarily gender-oriented initiations. These are more like taking you from one level of um, absorption, absorption of the material to the next level via the knowledge lectures and a certain right that just formalizes it right mm -hmm. um so i'm not sure what happens later but uh it looks to me like the second order material and again this is from the outside it looks to me like the second order material is where we get into uh sort of solo practitioner stuff really because you've learned the nuts and bolts of hermetic kabbalah You've yeah. learned the nuts and bolts of uh, sort of hermetic Egyptian magic, sympathetic magic, and, and geomancy, and all of these different uh, magical expressions or magical practices. And uh, it looks to me like in the second order um, is where you kind of put that into practice as an individual after learning the theory in the outer order. Mm -hmm. So. So uh, with Golden Dawn particularly, I just don't see anything in there that precludes feminine um, uh, participation, you know. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I see. Well, before we wrap up, because we are coming close to the end of this hour, um, Jamie, last main chapter of your book is talking about the cult of Mithras and Maybe you give us just a few hints about that and about what is your take on that in your book? Well, I think there are a lot of parallels between Mithraism and uh, Freemasonry. And whether we can, you know, it was not my purpose in the book to uh, form an uninterrupted lineage extending from Mithraism into Freemasonry, as some other authors have done 
have mm-hmm. tried to do. You know, I don't think the evidence is there to prove an un- uninterrupted, uh, uh, you know, transfer uh, transmission through yeah. that. Um, but I, I will say that there are some interesting parallels. Um, anybody who knows uh, anything about any Freemasonry, for sure, if they were to read that chapter in the book or, or read anywhere about Mithraism, certain things are going to pop out to you that you're going to recognize from your experiences in Masonry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would argue from your experiences in any uh, post-Golden Dawn um, magical order, um, but I, I will say that of particular interest is uh, uh, the toroctony. You know, it just contains the toroctony is that main bas relief that you see that that shows Mithras on top of the bull slaying the bull. You know, he's kind of mm-hmm. holding his face back. He's driving a, a short dagger or, mm-hmm. or a short sword or some sort of dagger usually into the uh, neck of the bull. Uh, there are two figures on either side of the Tauroctony. They're called Cautes and Cautopates. And uh, one of them is holding a torch up and his legs are crossed. Um, and the, and they're wearing Phrygian caps, just as Mithras is wearing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other one is holding the torch down and his legs are also crossed. So looking at that, uh, Mithras riding on a bull. Mithras as a solar personification riding the bull so you could look at that central image as the sun in taurus at the vernal equinox which mm-hmm. as we as we already said is the analucas of Freemasonry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you look at the two guys on the other side if mithras slaying the bull at the vernal equinox is the equinoctial point then these two guys with the crossed legs are the solstitial points. Solstitial, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, and one of them is holding the torch up, i.e. the Tropic of Cancer, right? And one of, the, or the St. John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the other one is holding the torch down at the Tropic of Capricorn, right? Where the sun is right. at its, from, where from the perspective of the Northern Hemisphere, the sun is at its lowest point. Right, so, and St. John the Apostle, yeah. Mm. Right, so if you look at the St. John, um, if you're a Mason, I don't think this is imprudent to say that the Saints John, um, pretty much every lodge is dedicated to the Holy Saints yeah, John, sure. and that if you look at the some versions of the point within the circle diagram, if you're if you're not familiar, you can Google that image very readily. Uh, you'll find that each of those parallel um, perpendicular lines are attributed to a Saint, a Saint John. St. John the Evangelist and St. John the Baptist. Uh, and, and in the center, you have the circumpunct, which is the, uh, a, you know, an obvious solar symbol used mm-hmm. since time mm-hmm. in the world. So I would just I would just say that that's uh, one of the more important uh, yeah. reference points. Uh, to very interesting. Well, Jamie, before we end, is there anything that's coming up on your agenda, maybe a new book or some important talk somewhere across the US or whatever you would like to let us know or something that's that we not speak about now and which seems really important to say? Yes, on uh, either June 14th or 15th, I think it's June 15th in uh, Virginia, I'm speaking at Esotericon, 
uh, with some really great uh, – it's a Masonic event. It's Esotericon in Virginia. I believe it's in Alexandria or close by. Um, uh, P.D. Newman is going to be there, who's a great friend of mine. Uh, Shout out to P.D. Newman. He's uh, done some excellent – excellent work regarding the absolutely i need to have him once on this show as well oh yeah i can give you his information we text daily we're great Mm -hmm. so um i've got that coming up and i'm very excited for it also i'm about i'm about 25 percent through my next manuscript um okay which uh, a little teaser on that um do you guys have the middle chamber lecture there where sure Okay, yeah. so, so you take it from the porch to the middle chamber. Any Mason will know what we're talking okay, about. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so my next book is going to be dealing specifically uh, with the esoteric kind of perspective or the occult perspective on that particular journey that we take in in the second degree of Freemasonry. And I'm going to unpack every little thing in there. I'm going to unpack and Very it. important and very much underrated, I believe. I've never seen it worked up by anybody yeah. before. Yeah. So. Yeah. Great. Well, you have absolutely have to let us know and me know when that will be ready to be published because we have at that point in to talk about it at least, or maybe meet again. We'll see I would love that to. will be. I would love to. It'd be my Great. pleasure. Jamie, thank you so much for your time. I know it was rather early morning on a Sunday in Phoenix, Arizona, due to the eight hour time difference between Vienna and uh, Arizona. Thank you for making that possible. And um, well, I'm sure that our listeners had a very interesting hour in your company. And I hope to have you back one day. And thanks, brother, for being with us. Brother Rudolph, thank you so much again for having me. Um, I'm glad it was early in the morning. I kind of think more clearly early in the morning. <laughs> you might have had a tough time with me if this were uh, 8, 8 p.m. or 10 p.m. So we'll never do it at that hour because it would be five in the morning for me. Then that, that might be even worse. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much. Bye now. All right. Thank you. Bye.
Age for Horse, a piece performed by Jamie Paul Lamb, who was our interview guest today, and his band Moonlike Magic. And that ended the talk that Jamie and I had about his book Myth, Magic and Masonry. I'm quite sure you enjoyed that. I will give you further information about where to find this book, as usual, on the Thoughts Hermes podcast page and on the related page of the site. Thanks, Jamie, for this highly interesting moment in your company. So, friends and listeners, that was episode two of the season three of our Thoughts Hermes podcast. Our next two interview episodes will bring to you two very interesting guests. In episode three, I will talk to Lon Milo Duquette, and I really think he does not need any introduction. I'm very excited and happy that Lon took the time to talk to us. And in episode four, I will receive somebody that I have been listening to on his own videocasts and read his book called Book of One. He's a fascinating man and a lovely personality, spiritual coach and sacred activist Bernard Alvarez. Sometime in between those episodes, you will also receive notice of our first Thoth Hermes Ex Libris episode, so make sure to subscribe to our newsletter or at least subscribe to the Thoth Hermes Facebook page. I do hope you enjoyed your time with us today and I hope that you have you back with me soon. Thanks for listening. Take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon. <laughs>